So I'm, I'm glad to be able to take the opportunity to teach Sunday school and um, rather than starting something new, uh, I'm just going to continue on where uh, Pastor Booth was going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and so if my memory serves me right, we should be on Lord's Day 22, uh, looking at questions 57 and 58 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Yes, it is page 881. 881. Well, let's start out by reading, uh, reciting these together. I'll ask the question and then we can all respond with the answers. Question 57 and 58. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Let me just uh, remind you, well, Al actually asked the question so that you can remind me. So why is it, where are we at in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, what's going on with, uh, you know, the resurrection of the body being quoted there, what's this article concerning life everlasting, why are those being referred to? Anybody know? The Apostles' Creed, right? So uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is here now explaining the Apostles' Creed. So that's a typical, and I'm sure you talked about this already, that's a, a typical um, uh, section in catechisms to have the creed explained through question and answer. Any other, any other typical uh, things that catechisms uh, tend to go through? I'm thinking of Two other ones. Ten Commandments. Yep. What's the other one? The Lord's Prayer, right? Then those are typically the three things uh, that, that many Reformed catechisms uh, end up explaining and going through questions and answers. Yeah. Isn't that something that Mark Luther who asked about praying and he gave that guidance? Even I think R.C. Sproul or Children's Book. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then in Luther's small catechism, he has um, that laid out that we would know how to pray, right? Um, our catechism, the shorter catechism, larger catechism, doesn't um, expound the Apostles' Creed like Heidelberg does, but I'll make some references to Westminster, and you'll see that they don't pass over those doctrines by any means. Uh, as we would expect that they wouldn't, right? Well, let's look at question 57 first. And I think we'll spend the majority of our time on 57 
maybe, and then, and then we'll jump into to 58 towards the end. So it's interesting to me, and maybe it was interesting to you, uh, there in question 57, that the catechism asks how this particular doctrine, right, the resurrection of the body, how it comforts you. Now, let me open up and, and look at some of the previous answers, but none of the previous answers, except for one that I can think of, um, ask that in that way. Um, usually they're asking, what does this mean? Yeah, go ahead. There's an interesting parallel going all the way back to question one. Yeah, no, no, keep, go ahead, go ahead. So question one says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it's, a, it's an interesting parallel. It is, it is deliberate. Uh, it is deliberate that that question, question one, and then once we get to the question about the resurrection of the body, come to us in terms of being comforting. Uh, come to us in terms of comforting our souls uh, with those particular doctrines. right? Because if you look at some, some of the previous questions, you have, what do you believe concerning? What do you understand by? Right? But this is, how does this particular doctrine comfort you? Now, what do we mean by comfort? What is the comfort that sinners need? Now, what is the comfort that sinners need, even as we look at Heidelberg Catechism question number one? Uh, I mean, the, the general comfort is that we're in God's hands there's a very practical comfort with this in that when you have a loved one that dies that knows the Lord, this is really the only thing that comes to mind and is very mentally comforting. It's, it, it's very practically comforting. As we're like in question 52, that, that comfort of God being the judge is a little bit... <laughs> Right. It makes you know that God's in control of, of sin. But this one is, is, think of how we kind of identify with comfort. Yeah, yeah, because what is the source of our discomfort? You know, if we're thinking about this in terms of what Heidelberg Catechism Question 1 is asking, then what we're thinking of here in terms of the resurrection of the dead, what is the source of our discomfort? And that sounds almost like it's not strong enough, right? Oh, I'm just a little bit discomfort. Right, right? No. What is the source of discomfort? Sin, Sin right? Sin and death. Uh, uh, right? Death reigns through sin. Uh, man in their condition, fallen in sin, are spiritually dead and will be physically dead, even though we even as we feel the effects of physical death even in our bodies as they waste away as we age, right? See, comfort comes in the reversal of death through the redemption purchased by Christ and then applied by his spirit. So this resurrection of the body, like we already said, uh, is, is looking at the Apostles' Creed 
in trying to explain what is meant when we confess those words, right? Because when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we're not just merely saying words. It actually means something. Those doctrines actually matter uh, for how we understand ourselves and how we understand our God and how we understand the redemption that has been uh, given to us. And so really what uh, the Creed seems to be concerned about and what uh, Heidelberg is intending that we take from this uh, particular phrase is that the resurrection doctrine um, addresses the entirety of the person, body and soul. And that's, that's really what uh, Heidelberg is trying to make sure that we uh, get a grasp of. Now, if we th- start thinking about the resurrection, uh, we may think about it in, in you know, two kind of aspects, right? We think about the resurrection of the soul, and we think about the resurrection of the body. Let's think for a minute about the resurrection of the soul. So, uh, and that's really what uh, the answer to 57 has in view at first, Right, when we think about the resurrection of the soul, we can think about it uh, in a couple of different ways. We may think about the pre- present resurrection life of the believer. Right? Somewhere like Colossians 3, verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now that... Uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, presupposes what Paul already said in Colossians in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so when we start talking about resurrection in that kind of way, Resurrection as a spiritual reality that is the present experience of believers. What are we talking about? What doctrine are we talking about? Regeneration. Regeneration, right? Being born again. Right? That spiritual rebirth that comes as a result of God's spirit. Uh, This is what Revelation 20 says verses 5 and 6 talks about when it's talking about the first resurrection. But this present resurrection is not exactly what the question is addressing. It's not exactly, question 57 isn't exactly uh, addressing regeneration per se. This question is looking forward to more the effects of this regeneration most notably the fact that our souls go to be with the Lord. That's what happens to resurrected souls. They are alive and uh, experience and have life everlasting now. So Jesus says to the thief on the cross, what does he say? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Though this thief's body will be laid in the grave, this thief is going to enter into paradise that day and be in the presence of Christ. Our shorter catechism says in the answer to question 37, 
the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. So that when our bodies die, our resurrected souls, which have already been enjoying eternal life, continue to enjoy eternal life and pass into the presence of the Lord. Do you know any scriptures that might prove that very fact? Yeah, right, exactly. Right, Philippians uh, chapter 1. Uh, verses 21 to 23, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And that's part of the resurrection hope of every believer is the fact that when death does come, which it does come, unless the Lord comes beforehand, each and every one of us do face death. But in that moment, our souls continue in resurrection life with our Lord in glory. Allison, did you have a question? No, just another text. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because Job says, I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. After my skin, worms have destroyed this body. Yet in my flesh shall I see God, see the redeemer. Yeah. That's encouraging. I don't think it's death is obvious. Yeah. That's very cool. That's exactly right. And going back to the Hebrews passage there, there. That's an encouragement and a call to worship. And so even so, as we gather on the Lord's Day to worship, that's what we're doing. Right? We're gathering with the saints of old. We're gathering with the spirits made perfect. We're gathering with the angels. We're gathering in the presence of the Lord. And so that each Lord's Day, as we gather as God's people, to enjoy being in the presence of the Lord, when we die, we enjoy that same thing, yet in fuller measure right? There's a continuity that exists between what we do here on Sunday mornings and what we do for eternity, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So let's, let's think for a minute. So we, we've talked about the resurrection of the soul, but the answer here uh, that Heidelberg gives us in question 57 wants to make sure that we don't miss something else regarding the resurrection of the body. And that is the resurrection of the body, <laughs> right? 
that resurrection isn't merely a spiritual reality for our souls, our immaterial uh, selves, our spiritual selves, but also resurrection uh, and the redemption that comes is for our bodies as well. Now, in this sin-cursed world in which we walk, uh, living in sin that ravages our bodies, living as those who are resurrection, with resurrection treasure that's housed in jars of clay, there's this temptation that we would devalue our bodies. Right? As, if, as, as if our bodies are some type of hindrance that needs to be shed in order for us to enjoy eternal life, in, in order for us to be elevated to a higher spiritual mode of existence. As if somehow our bodies are a hindrance to our spiritual life with Christ. But that thought can and will most definitely lead us into error if we think about our bodies in that way. As if we think that our bodies in and of themselves are evil. Anybody know anything about the Gnostic heresies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's funny how heresies, you, you can pinpoint those moral things that uh, those heresies do away with that, that sinners don't like. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, exactly. So dualism, or uh, Gnostic heresies, and I say heresies because there's all manner of heresies that were coming out uh, in the first century and beyond. Um, <clears throat> within the Christian and Jewish world, where one of the main tenets is this dualism between the spiritual and the physical. And in Greek philosophy, and in, this, in the way that this Gnosticism uh, takes on theology, um, the spiritual is seen as good, and the physical is seen as evil. Yeah. And so we need to completely reject this idea, which comes out of this Gnosticism, that, that the physical is bad. Physical is good. We look forward to a renewed physical where God dwells with his people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And it's interesting you bring up Genesis because some of the heretics in these Gnostic kinds of traditions uh, decided to um, bring in this dualism, not just between the the, the, the spirit and the flesh, but also between the mean old God of the Old Testament who's concerned with earthly things and the nice, gentle Jesus who is concerned with spiritual things in the New Testament. And so you have this uh, chasm that's brought in by the Gnostics uh, between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Right? Somebody like Marcion is a, a chief example of that. And, you know, you read Paul, and you read him saying something like, the flesh, and then the spirit, and the spirit, and the flesh. And you could see how these Gnostics would, would attach 
that philosophical idea of this uh, dualism between uh, flesh and spirit, attach that and interpret scripture in light of that, and then, you know, come up with all kinds of wild things uh, about the nature of what it means to be a human and what redemption actually entails. Um, but again, that's not uh, what the scriptures say. Because spiritual, if we think about it in biblical terms, spiritual does not mean non-physical. Right? Now some people, some Christians, even at the time of Paul, began to question the reality of the resurrection of the body. Early on. Uh, in that great passage where Paul expounds the resurrection, uh, anybody know what that is? The, the, 1 Corinthians 15 is like the resurrection passage, right? And that's the concern that Paul has uh, in the beginning of that particular passage. And so he spends his time there in 1 Corinthians 15 expanding the importance of the resurrection, both of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. So let me just read a couple passages from 1 Corinthians 15 to get a sense of what's going on with the resurrection and its importance in terms of our redemption. Uh, that we would be resurrected bodily as well. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19, that is, is if Christ is not raised, we are not raised, and therefore we have no comfort. Right? So let me just read a couple of verses here. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, beginning with Jesus' resurrection, of course, then what is this? It's foolishness. But you see, that's not the case, as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that Christ's resurrection is the first, the first fruits of all of those who will likewise be raised. Then as Paul goes down a little bit further, and you'll see the reference to 1 Corinthians 15 there um, in the footnote, footnote 2 for question 57. So Paul goes on there in verses 42 to 46. 
we see that Christ's resurrection is the comforting assurance of our own resurrection. Listen to what Paul says there in verses 42 to 46. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Notice in those passages, in that passage there, that the spiritual is not an immaterial static experience. Notice that what is raised, what is sown, you see, is a natural body. What is raised is a spiritual body. And you see even there that, that this uh, natural or flesh versus spiritual or spirit is not a distinction between material and immaterial. Right? It's of the spirit. That's what makes something spiritual. It is a result of spiritual life of of the life of the spirit of god now just think for a minute about christ's resurrection and then we'll bring this back to our own resurrection what kind of body did the son of man take to himself a human body right a human body. Do we know anything about that body? Are you at speaking pre resurrection? Yeah, yeah, just just incarnation. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't remarkable. It had no outward glory, we might say. That's what Isaiah fifty three tells us. Yeah, Ray. Um they can his body could hurt and his body could die because it did die right yeah it was male yeah he was he was a man yeah like us in every way both like us in every way a true body and a reasonable soul. That's what the son took to himself. Fully human. Now what kind of body was he raised with? An imperishable imperishable body. A glorified body. Was it an actual body? Yes. So his body could eat. His body could walk around. It was a recreated body, right? It was all the scars and the nail wounds. It wasn't like, okay, that one was toast and then you know, make a whole brand new one. It was 
gives. There's, yeah, there, there's continuity between the body that he had and the body that he then had after the resurrection, right? The body that lay dead in the grave is the same body that was given life and raised, yet in a different way because it is of the Spirit. And so that it is a glorified body. And so what happened to Christ's body when he ascended into heaven? Did he shed his body as he ascended into heaven? Yeah. Do you think about that much? Do you think about that? Christ right now in heaven with the Father has a body. Like a skin and bones. Right? Right, at, just at the pinnacle of his exaltation, right, the pinnacle of Christ's exaltation, Christ ascends to heaven in a body like ours. And he remains there in that body. And what does he do? As he's resurrected, ascends into heaven, in this body that he's taken on and has been glorified by the resurrection... What does he do? 1 Corinthians 15.45 says he becomes life-giving spirit. He gives to us what he has by his spirit. His spirit gives to us new resurrection life, which is the down payment of what we will attain as we attain a resurrection body like his. What do you think about that? Right? Now, some of the reason why we might have some difficulty thinking about being raised bodily is some of the difficulties that we have with our bodies. Right? They give us lots and lots of problems. Right? All that we know of bodily existence is marred by sin. In many ways, it's incomprehensible to think about having a body that doesn't have the problems that bodies have. Right? Sicknesses and diseases and uh, the surety of death. Right? That's the plight of natural man. That's the plight of man fallen in Adam. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so what do we know about this resurrection life that we'll have in embodied resurrected life with Jesus? We know that our bodies that we have now will be given new life. Right? There's going to be a, cons- a correspondence between our old bodies and our new bodies. Yet all of the infirmities will be purged. Right? We will be raised imperishable, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll, we'll be able to recognize and will be recognized. We don't become something absolutely new. Right? We'll, we'll know Christ. We'll see Christ. He'll see us. There's correspondence to what we were and what we will be. And our brothers and sisters, all the saints, will have recognition. But there is that all-important discontinuity. 
that is a result of glorification. Think about 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's our, resurrected, our resurrection hope, isn't it? That we will be raised and we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be like Jesus. The sin, the suffering, the miseries that characterize this life are gone. Body and soul. And we'll be like our Lord. You know, one of the things that this question is, is guarding against uh, is perhaps an unwitting um, Gnosticism, right? Because it, it's, it's unnatural for our bodies to be separated from our souls. It's unnatural for our souls uh, to exist apart from the bodies in which they were embodied in, right? right? We were made as body and soul, as unities, and so that when our bodies die, our souls immediately pass into glory. Our bodies lie in the grave. But that's a temporary state of affairs. Right? That's, that's not our final hope. They, they sit in that temporary state until the final resurrection when we enter into the fullness of eternal life. See, it's... It's not a liability that we're human beings with bodies. It's part of what it means to be human. At least we think that, uh, we shouldn't think that, that physical existence is something to be disparaged, right? Because if we start to disparage that, then we start to disparage the Son of God who took on flesh and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Right? If a body is good enough for the Son of God to take upon himself, shouldn't we rejoice in the fact that we get bodies like Jesus' body? Amen. Right? How does that comfort you? How does that comfort you? Just think about that. All right, let's think about uh, question 58 for, well, I mean, whoops. <laughs> I think, I think David and I have the same pathology. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. Well, here, let me just, I only had a couple things to say anyway. So I'll just say it and we'll, then I can move on to Lord's Day. <laughs> just say it. Just say it. What? Oh, I forgot about those. See, that's what I was doing. I was going to the end so that. You guys have to leave without asking any questions. Um, well, let's just take a second and go through this. All right, cause, because, because 57 sets us up for question 58. Right? How does the article, Life Everlasting, comfort you? 
Uh, We see that in the fullness of Christ's redemption, including our final resurrection into glory, we will enter into everlasting life. How do we enter into everlasting life? We enter as resurrected ones in Christ. Now, we already talked a little bit about everlasting life, even when we were talking about um, uh, the resurrection of the body. But we see something about this final state of glory. We see something here in question 58 uh, about what it will be like. And what it's going to be like is perfect blessedness. Do you know what perfect blessedness is like? No? No? <laughs> Ray, do you know perfect blessedness? Can you share with us what it means? <laughs> oh, don't we all? We have no, we can't even come close to fathoming how amazing it's going to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. We can't even comprehend what that means. Right. Because we've been sinful our whole life, and we will till the day we die. But not to be, not to be able, not to be tempted by sin, or be able to even have sin. Yeah. Right. What's prepared for us? Oh, go ahead. Katie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right, and that's the, that's the point. Right, think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, sometimes we have, a, we have difficulty thinking about the nature of eternal life. Because we can't comprehend joys that don't include sorrows. Right? Yeah, Allison. For the Narnia lovers among us, I mean, the best thing we've ever experienced in this life, like the chapter in the title page, eternal life is like chapter one of the adventure that never ends. And each chapter is better than the next. <laughs> That's what's coming. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, Jen. Expected 
that, that this body of mine, which you all know I struggle with certain things, one day it's going, it's going to be this, this body in its perfected, glorified form. You all will be there. We will be together, loving one another perfectly in the presence of our Savior. It, it, it blows my mind. It's really all I want to say. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Even the, even the greatest joys of this life, right? Sometimes maybe you've had just, just a moment where you think, wow, this is great, before something else comes along, right? This is great. What we have in store for us is beyond what that could, could ever be, right? Maybe you just love your spouse so much, and you, and you can't imagine what life would, would be without them. And then you, I mean, that's a, that's a, a place for us to, to look to Christ and look to what's ahead and recognize that even the greatest joys of the relationships that we enjoy, the closest relationships that we enjoy in this earth, aren't even worth comparing to the joys that are ahead of us uh, with our Lord. Yeah, David. Yeah, that's true. And then this blessedness, this perfect blessedness, will be to the praise of our God. Right? That's the end for which we were created. Right? And that is the highest joy that we can ever have because that's what our hearts long for. Right? David, you said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God, right? That's what Augustine said. And that's the reality, right? That if you think, oh man, heaven's not going to have this thing and this thing and this thing, recognize that those things aren't the things that your soul was created to enjoy and to love. It's the Lord himself that we were created to love and enjoy. And that is what he has prepared for all of those who love him. All right, I seem to have gone to the very end and there's no time for questions, so have a great day. No, if there are any questions, go ahead and ask them. <laughs> I think it does show too that it's, it's physical, it's a physical praise, it's a physical praise now and in eternity that God wants us to praise him with our bodies now. Yeah. And we're not, we're not totally blind to a more blessedness now because when we come together on a Sunday, we should feel that this is a different, more blessed place because we're with the saints praising God as we will in the future. So the eternality of our salvation has current benefits now. And we're not totally yeah. blind to it. Uh, although if you're not saved, you're utterly and completely blind to it. You don't no blessedness whatsoever. Yeah. I think that, that made me think of something.
too, you know, sometimes people think about worship as if the gathering of God's people is kind of, it's not really that important. We, all of life is worship. But if we think about ourselves as embodied people in a place doing particular things, that should shape the way that we can actually say that when we gather together in the same space and sing those songs with our vocal cords, that those things actually matter and are different than the everyday, ordinary worship that we do in the rest of our lives. And I think that these kind of doctrines ground that and make clear that what we do here is really, really important, and it is, in fact, a foretaste of what we will have. Any other? Jen. No, it's okay. It also brings to mind this side, which we talked about weeks ago, about unbelievers whose bodies will be resurrected, but they will not be glorified. Yeah. And so it brings to me the urgency of my loved ones, the people that are around me, who, when they are resurrected, it's not going to be a good time. It's going to be the most horrific thing that they could ever experience to want to share the gospel with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, theologically, aren't they technically glorified, but in the bad in the sense that they last forever, but not glorified in the sense of the whole? Yeah, they become immortal in that kind of way. They can't die in the same way that our bodies die now, but it's it's an eternal death. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't tend to think about that as it being embodied. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Ray? To go along with what Jen was saying, I mean, it, what brings sadness to me is, is people that don't know Christ now and never experience the type of joy that we have now. Yeah. Not even referring to what we will have to do. But we still don't give up praying for those. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe a happier note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Something that you said that you think about um, when I, what I picture is from the how much more we're making. And when I have like that perfect gift for each of my children and I'm so excited to give it to them yeah. on Christmas and that anticipation and then thinking of when God says, if you who are mortal know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more. Yeah. And I think about God just glorified looking over us and like in anticipation of eternity with us. And he doesn't tell us everything, but he wrote us a book and gives us all yeah. the He's so excited about it too. And I like oh. Yeah, that's beautiful. Along the lines of what Michelle was saying, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So what she's saying is that was his endurance of the cross was for that joy yeah. set before him. All right, I'm getting the wrap this up. So enough questions. All right, let let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, We thank you uh, that we're able to to speak about things that you have revealed to us. And Lord, that even in doing so, 
that you ignite uh, joy um, and anticipation in all that is ours in Jesus. Lord, may these things and the things that we've heard today uh, settle heavy on our hearts uh, to give us great joy and peace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.